Well, now we're still looking at this epistle to the Colossians, and I must uh, announce again that this is a recording made in the chapel of the open book, and is number five of the series, Access and Acceptance, or Made Neat, Colossians chapter one. We have been looking at the fact that this neatness is the consequence of being delivered and redeemed and translated and forgiven. And now our attention is being drawn to the one who makes this possible. Redemption cannot work itself. Redemption needs a redeemer. And here we can either enter into a debating society and scream ourselves hoarse in our endeavours to beat one another down with regard to this problem and that, or we can take off our shoes and off our feet and listen to what God said to Moses, Thou canst not see my face and live. But I will just reveal you the back parts. That means to say, it's telling us there are some things that belong to God to his person, to the person of Christ, which is written for our learning, but not for our argument. We have to say to ourselves that not one of us can embrace all that is said concerning the person of Christ and present it as a connective, logical, rational statement. There are some things that baffle us. But why should that, that should be strange to us? when we read in the very scriptures themselves that confessedly great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. So shall we this morning rather consider what God says and let that weigh with us and then say it's beyond our ability to understand it completely but we've got enough to make us worship and bow down and glory in the fact that God has taken such a step to bring such as we are back to himself. Now the first thing I think which stands out in scripture is this. By man came death. By man must come the resurrection of the dead. That's a statement from scripture. But another statement from scripture says, no man can by any means Redeem his brother. Well, what are they going to do then? By man came death, by man must come the resurrection. But no man can redeem his brother. Well, there is one man that stands out separate from all. And he is spoken of as the second man and the last Adam. But there's something about him that makes him separate from all mankind. A supernatural birth, prophesied in the Old Testament, that a child should be born who would nevertheless be El Shaddai, the mighty God. Can you understand that? I can't. Can we believe it? Well, what are we going to do if we don't? So, shall we say, here we are facing the mystery of redeeming love, and it will be our joy one day, to have it more fully explained to us. But meanwhile, we bow our heads 
and just accept what God says and praise him for his marvellous condescension in taking this step. And so we have, as we've looked at in Isaiah 45 and in Hebrews chapter 1, that the uh, there is no else, no one else but God, a just God and a Saviour. His hand has laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of his fingers, Old Testament. And every knee shall bow to him, Old Testament. And you know what I'm going to say, don't you? That it says of our Saviour, the earth and the heavens are the work of his hands and every knee shall bow to him. So you see, these things are written and they are waiting for us. Not to argue the point and make splits among us, but to rather unite us together and say, Oh, t'was love. T'was wondrous love. The love of God to me. It brought my Saviour from above to die on Calvary. So let's look at this passage now in Colossians chapter 1, turning our attention away from what he has done to what he is. It says in the first case, verse 15, is the image of the invisible God. Now that's a condescension to us. God is spoken of in the scriptures throughout that is as invisible, whom no man hath seen or can see. And yet there is a need in our nature to have something that we can hold on to, something that we can in some measure grasp and he's condescended to that so let us notice how say for instance in the um, the epistle to the Hebrews this is introduced this is an old story but ever new I know the epistle to the Hebrews chapter 1 It says, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, that's a general survey of Old Testament scriptures and the different ones that God used, Moses, Isaiah and others, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. And this we have faced before. It doesn't actually say by his Son. It says, he has spoken unto us in Son. But of course that doesn't make good English. But we've got something here that no language, English, French, Greek or Hebrew, can really envisage. He has spoken unto us in Son. But if you study the Old Testament, you will find that that is an expression that they would understand. God spake in God Almighty. So that these are assumptions of the invisible God stooping down for our sakes. And he has spoken unto us in Son. He hasn't thundered from Mount Sinai. He has come to Bethlehem. And he has walked the shore of Galilee. And he has sat upon a green hill. And he has spoken in the language of men. He has spoken unto us in his Son. And then it doesn't hesitate to say, verse 6, And again, when he bringeth bring in the first begotten into the world, he saith, 
and let all the angels of God worship him. But you do remember, don't you, that even in the Old Testament, they had enough knowledge of God to know that it was not possible for a man to please God and to be a worshipper of angels. And we have the epistle to the Colossians, the very one that we have in front of us, where he rebukes them, adopting the worshipping attitude of angels. And yet here's one that God himself says, let all the angels of God worship him. And yet once more, verse 10 of chapter 1 of Hebrews. And thou, Lord, in the beginning, hast laid the foundations of the foundation of the earth. There could be no possible doubt as to what that refers to. In the beginning, God laid the foundations of the earth. And Job is rebuked because he didn't quite realise this and God tells him so. This is the one who is called the Son of God. This is the one who is our Redeemer. In the beginning thou hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. You can hardly believe it, can you? But there it's written. The heavens. Why, when Paul wrote these words to the Hebrews, the heavens were vast enough. But what about the heavens today, when we have these marvellous instruments that search out the millions and millions of miles of light years that we have to deal with now with space. The heavens are the work of thy fingers. It's overwhelming, isn't it? Yet it's tad written. They shall perish, but thou remainest. This one is going to outlast time and eternity. And in the last chapter of this um, St. Hebrews, he comes back to this. He says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Well now friends, let's get our anchorage there. Never mind whether we can understand all the mystery of godliness. How we can understand how God could walk the earth in the guise of a man. Let, let that be. But say it was done that God might be just and the justifier of those that believe his son and that we belong to him a wonder they're going to be like him and then we shall know even as we are known. We're not upstairs yet in the big school. We're down in the infant's class here. And there are many things that even the teacher couldn't make us understand even if he wanted to. So let us bow our heads in the presence of this mighty revelation and realise some of the titles that are given to Christ in this Colossians chapter 1. Uh, before we go back to Colossians, will you look at the first epistle of Timothy? The first epistle of Timothy, chapter 1, verse 17. Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. Notice the words. The King, eternal, immortal, invisible. Now when you look at the last chapter of this same epistle, chapter 6, he's giving instruction to his son Timothy, verse 14, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, 
until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now you can turn me to the verse in the book of the Revelation, which says that's the title of Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality. Don't you see this is balancing chapter 1? Unto the King eternal, immortal, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light, which no man can approach unto, that's invisible, whom no man hath seen, nor can see. So now we've got in chapter 1, and the chapter 6, these statements concerning God. Now will you look at chapter 3? In the middle. As it were, get, get the two chapters in your mind like this. One that side, one that side, and the lines converging down to chapter 3 in the middle like this. Verse 15 of chapter 3. But if I tarry long, he's going away in his writing to Timothy, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth, and without controversy, uh, I won't go into the differences of translation, but as far as I read this, I do not believe the church is the pillar and ground of truth. I think it's got a, f a f much firmer foundation than the church could ever give it. So I stop at the pillar, uh, at the church of the living God. Now he says, the pillar and ground of truth and confessedly great is the mystery of godliness. And what is this mystery of godliness? God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. So there again, you see, you get two statements in this epistle to Timothy, speaking about God who is eternal, immortal, invisible, whom no man hath seen or can see, and then the mystery of godliness, that he has been seen, that he has been here, and that he has been manifest in the flesh. So now we come back again then to the, um, the Colossians chapter 1, to notice the titles that are given to this Redeemer of ours, even though we may not be able to take them very far. Colossians chapter 1, it's the very first thing that he said is verse 15, who is the image of the invisible God. There is something in human nature that craves for an image, something to hold on to. Otherwise, why is it that some nations, who otherwise were mathematicians and fairly advanced in civilization, should have had image worship. Why is it that the people of Israel, who were given God's word, so easily slipped into image worship? Why, simply because of our inmost desire to, to know something more than that God is, but is invisible. But all image worship is a usurpation of the essential position of Christ 
But it is right that we should have an image, but not one that we make. Christ is the image. Christ is God's condescension to our limitations. God says to us in so many words, you want to know what I'm like? Well, I can't tell you in the fullest sense, but I point you to my son. A simple question and a simple answer. A child might ask it and a child might receive it. What is God like? Have you ever taught children in Sunday school? What is God like? Well, God is like Christ. God is Christ-like. Let that be enough for us till our travelling days are done. And then we shan't have to change it, but we'll realise how vast it is when we know, even as we are known. So he is the image. Hebrews chapter 1 says he is the express image. And the word that is used in that passage is our English word character. A character is something which has been cut or carved, and so we have characters like letters that have been made in type and so on. So we have the character of God. What is he like? He's like Christ. He has walked this earth. He has spoken in the language of men. And so this condescension of God is one of the marvellous thoughts we have to keep in mind. He's the image. And then it says he's the firstborn of every creature. And there are some who said, oh, that means he was the first one to be created. He had no existence before, but he was the first one to be created. So will you glance down to chapter 18, words, uh, verse 18, I'm sorry, written by the same man in the same context. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning the firstborn from the dead. Well now Christ couldn't be the firstborn from the dead if he had no existence until resurrection because that's nonsense. So we are rather slipping up on the word firstborn. In the New Old Testament particularly, the firstborn did not necessarily mean the first one to be born. It was a title of dignity. You remember that the firstborn son of Jacob forfeited his position because of his immoral action. And the one that received the coat of many colours, the one that was given dominion, the one to whom his brethren bowed down, the one who was the type of Christ was a long way down the list, Joseph. But he was given the firstborn's position. When you read Genesis 10, you read a long list of the nations that were in the earth. Genesis 10. And yet, after Genesis 10 was written, Moses was sent into the presence of Pharaoh and God said, let my firstborn go, that's Israel. Well, they were the firstborn of the nations, but they weren't the first of nations, for there were any Bibles said there were any amount of nations before every Israel was brought into existence. So the firstborn is a position of dignity, very much like associated with the adoption which gives you the position of firstborn son and heir. And then the astounding fact that it says of this saviour of ours by him were all things created. Now if there's one thing which is characteristic in the scriptures of the deity of God if I may use it in expression it is he's the creator. In the beginning God 
created. The heavens declare the glory of God. They show his handiwork. And in the Old Testament you will find that the, he laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of his hands. But in the epistle to the Hebrews chapter 1 those very words are used of Christ. I think we'll see them in case anyone should wish to know the exact chapter and verse. Chapter 1, Hebrews, verse 10. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth. There's no doubt about it, is there? He is the creator. And the heavens are the work of thine hands. He is the creator. Well, now we are up against a problem, aren't we? The creator becomes man and walks this earth and dies as a man that we might live. It seems almost impossible, doesn't it? And yet the Bible is full of that fact that God, in his love and moved by his righteousness, provided himself a way whereby we might be justified and redeemed and sanctified and taken to glory. All marvellous is the condescension of this God who upholds the earth and the heavens and counts them as like the dust in the scales or in a bucket. Let's go again. In fact, there are seven of these titles that we could ponder over for hours. The image of of God, the firstborn, the creator, and he is before all things. Oh, before we leave creation, notice its scope. It isn't merely the atoms of the earth. That's wonderful enough in all conscience. But this says visible and invisible. He's not merely the creator of the fabric of the earth, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him. This is Christ is being spoken of. And then it doesn't end there. I haven't finished it yet. They are not only created by him, but for him. For him. So he's the goal of creation. And they're all for him as well as by him. This is almost unbelievable, isn't it? And yet I go back to the Acts of the Apostles and I read the Church of God which he hath purchased by his own blood. And they've rewritten that and translated that in every possible way, but it still stands. Inexplicable, and yet written. Not explaining it to us, but telling us. So Colossians, once again, he is before all things, and by him all things consist. The word consist means to hold together. It's the force that we speak of as cohesion. There's some power that's in what we call nature that holds things together. As I've said before, these seats on which you're sitting in this chapel have been there for about, what, 70 or nearly 80 years. Uh, Don't be afraid, Uh, they'll, they'll still hold your weight. But don't forget, They're held together by the Son of God. That power, which once it's released, lets 
such power free as to shatter the earth. Scientists have at last split the atom. Of course, that's a contradiction in terms, because A means without, and Tom is a part of the word, that, like in anatomy, a part of the word that means to cut or to split. They split the unsplittable. But you know what they've done? Here is the hand of Christ, holding all things in his control. And the scientists have just lifted his little finger like that, and there goes off an explosion that means terrific destruction. That's the Christ that's our saviour, friends. What poor specimens we are when something happens, and we worry ourselves over this and over that. Well, we're all the same, but this is our standby. This is our redeemer. This is our saviour. This is our creator. This is our upholder. And then it goes on to say one thing further. He is the head of the body of the church. This one who created all things, visible and invisible. This one who, by whom all things are held together. Now he says, I'm leaving creation. Paul may have said to them, look, Colossians, I'm no scientist. I'm not telling you because I know this. I'm only telling you these as our introductions. But I want you to understand who he is that's head of the church. That one is the head of the church. And we are members associated with him. And he is the head of the body, the church. This one who is the beginning. So it's all over again. Oh yes, in this new creation, in this particular calling, he's the beginning. As he was in the beginning of the fabric of the worlds, he's the beginning so far as you and I are concerned. He's first. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Because now we're dealing with moral issues. Not merely the firstborn of all creation, but the firstborn from the dead. So he's the wonder of wonders. He who created heaven and earth took upon himself the nature of man that a body being prepared him he could offer himself for our sin. It's so wonderful that so many say I can't accept it, I can't believe it. But it's written for our learning friends without going into explanations and details. Then it says, he's the head of the body of the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and he is the goal, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Now then, that leads to the fullness of God, for it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And the church of the one body is described in the scriptures as being the fullness of him that fitteth all in all. So we have a place in this mighty uh, passage before us. You remember we had read Isaiah 45, where it repeats itself. There is none else, no God beside me. And it ends up with the words that unto me every knee shall bow. And with that passage I will conclude this very uh, simple survey 
by turning back to Philippians chapter 2. Verse 5 of chapter 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant. There are many things here that need careful rectification. I'm not stopping. But do notice the two forms. This doesn't mean external shape, except that the word shape had a meaning in early English which it hasn't got now. If you're acquainted with Shakespeare's King Lear, who resigned his throne and handed it over to his daughters, and because the way they carried on, he said, I will resume the shape that you think I've cast off forever. But he wasn't going to make himself look different. He was going to assume kingship again. So this is the shape or form or characteristic of God and the shape or form and characteristic of a servant. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself even more and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him not a name, but the name, which is above every name. Now here comes the quotation from Isaiah 45, where the Old Testament says, there is none else beside me, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, and things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth, that every tongue should confess, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, what a Saviour we have provided for us. Oh, what a pattern he's left us. Oh, what an inexplicable mystery of godliness he presents to us. And yet, how simple, how simple it can be reduced down so that we can say to a child who's inquiring the way of salvation, he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. With no further explanations, no theological terms brought in, oh, I trust that we are not only concerned about probing into these mysteries, but to recognise the love that provided such a way that God might be just, as well as the justifier of him that believes in Jesus.